One of the greatest endowments God gave to man to set him apart from the animals was speech. Most animals have tongues, but only man like God has speech. In fact, part of being made in the image of God is the the gift of speech, the ability to speak. God has got a word and language and communication, and he made us to share in that ability. And it turns out that our tongues, via the gift of speech, can do more to change the world than our, our hands, our feet, or our muscles. The tongue is a very potent and persuasive force. Historically, you may think nations rise and fall by the sword, but it could be argued that the world has changed more through thoughts and ideas and words. So do not underestimate the power of speech. This makes me think of, for example, something like Ronald Reagan's famous speech at the Berlin Wall, where he called on Mr. Gorbachev to tear down this wall. It's amazing how one simple speech can contribute to the, the end of a war, the Cold War. Think of also... Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, where he inspired a nation to, uh, of all races to live together peacefully. And of course, we think of President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the very height of the Civil War. And that speech was only three minutes long. It was a mere 272 words. But in it, he transformed the meaning of the Civil War and, and forged a type of a new founding document for the rebirth of a nation and equality. It's amazing how just a short speech, just a few words spoken into the air can change things, change people, change the world, foster peace, make the world a better place. Now, unfortunately, though, the power of speech goes both ways, and words can also be used destructively, negatively, to bring about great harm or ruin or suffering. About 21 years ago, 39 bodies were found in a San Diego mansion, the result of a mass suicide. What could cause this? Well, this was the result of a UFO religious cult known as Heaven's Gate. You may remember. The two founders believed they were alien spirits and also the two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11. And only those who followed them would be brought to a higher evolutionary level. And with the appearance of the Haley Bop Comet, In the 90s, their time of ascension had come. Earth was about to be recycled, they said. And the only way to escape was to leave their human bodies through suicide, at which point they would be safely transported to a spaceship trailing the comet. And to me, the only thing thing more crazy than the teaching itself is that people actually believe this. And that 39 people actually took their lives believing that they were going to board a spaceship trailing a comet. And so how did this happen? How were these people so duped? Now, of course, we're talking about lost, confused, desperate people who were burnt out by traditional religion. Still, this cult showcases the power of speech. I mean, just think about it. The, The cult leader made all of these claims There's no evidence, no proof, there's no picture of this spacecraft. There's literally nothing to substantiate any of his claims. But all these people were convinced to the extent of suicide, and it all was just by the power of speech. This is what persuasive words can do. The tongue can be twisted and turned and used to lead people astray. Again, it's just a bunch of words going out into the air but they can 
be used for great harm and great evil. And don't we also see the power of speech played out on a cosmic scale? God himself, he has the ultimate power of speech. And how does God use words, language, speech? Well, he uses words for good, for life, to create life. God's the giver of life. And he called all things into being. How? Just by words. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And thereafter, he calls everything into existence just by words. So talk about the power of speech. That's, that's some powerful speech right there. But on the flip side, a couple of chapters later, Genesis 3, you have Satan in the Garden of Eden. And by the end of the chapter, the whole world is cursed. Death is introduced. Suffering is a reality. And mankind is separated from God. It all started out so good. How did it get that bad that quickly? Now, how did Satan manage to do so much damage in the garden? And it, it was nothing but the power of speech. All he did was speak a few words to Eve. That's it. And he came in the form of a serpent, but it's not like he coiled around Eve and forced her to eat that fruit. He didn't touch her. He, he merely tempted her and deceived her with words. It was a simple exchange of a few words, but by it and by the power of speech, sin, death, and evil all just came alive. So I think it's safe to say the power of speech is not to be underestimated. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's, he knows what he's doing here and giving us this power. Nevertheless, he created every person on the planet with a built-in weapon of mass destruction, the tongue. And especially after the fall, the tongue can be used to bring about great evil. It can be used to hurt people and even to kill people. There's some good news, however, namely that the tongue can be redeemed in salvation. Per, per the new birth by faith in Christ, God re remakes us, so to speak. He gives us new equipment. We have uh, new eyes to see, new ears to hear, a new heart to love, a new mind to believe. And he also gives us a new tongue to speak, to praise. And now by the Spirit, we're enabled to use our tongues for good, to praise God, to, to bless others, to encourage. We still possess the power of speech, and being still sinners, we surely can still use our tongues for evil, to harm, to hurt. But now we have the ability to also use them to bring about good and God's glory. And so a huge part now of the Christian life is learning how to tame the tongue, and use it for glory, for good, and not for evil. This is really the main lesson behind James chapter 3, the first half of the chapter. It's where we turn to now. And so you can do that if you want to follow along and turn your Bibles now to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We just finished a long section in James chapter 2 on faith and works. It's really one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. And so we took our time with it, but now moving on, James turns, changes subjects to the use of the tongue. I don't think these issues are unrelated, though. The general theme of James is the picture of living faith, the character 
of living faith. And his point in chapter two is that living faith, it's going to demonstrate itself. It's going to reveal itself by what? By works, actions, deeds. You're going to show that you have living faith. But don't think that doesn't include speech because it does. When you come to salvation, though you are not perfect in practice, if your faith is real and living, it's going to show itself now in how you live. A new life of of righteousness and, and works. And that includes speech, new speech, controlled speech, redeemed speech. And that's James 3. The topic is the tongue for verses 1 through 12. We're not going to cover all that today, but I want you to get acquainted with this long section. In verses 3 through 5, James points out how the tongue is such a small part of our body, but it's so powerful. Like, like the rudder on a ship, it can completely control us. But you had better not let it. You had better be the one controlling your tongue or else it will wreak havoc on your life like a forest fire. And that's the point of verses 6 through 8. He says the tongue is a fire. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. If you don't manage to control your tongue, it's going to bring ruin and suffering in your life. Even believers still have the ability to use their tongues for sin, for evil, to harm others, to curse others. That's the point of verses 9 through 12. It shouldn't be this way, though. So we must wrestle the tongue and by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring it under our control that it may be, that it may be used for good. And we'll find it's only the power of the gospel that can transform the tongue from poison to praise. So there's a lot to come. This is, this is necessary teaching. And I'll just say now, you're probably all going to be convicted all around right? Just anytime you teach on speech, it's just easy conviction because who here is without sin in speech? And so you look, you're probably all going to squirm a little bit because everyone's going to be nailed by what James says in chapter three when it comes to speech. But I'll tell you already, just accept it and embrace the conviction because that's what God uses to change us. And we all need to continue to grow in, in Christ's image here. Unless you think you're alone and perhaps struggling with your speech. James includes himself in this assessment. And, you know, we all need to work on wrestling the tongue, but James begins this discussion by directing this teaching toward himself and those like him, namely teachers. He starts with himself and teachers. And so he introduces this teaching on the tongue with a warning for teachers It surely applies to all. We'll see that unfold. But today we're just covering verses 1 through 2. And so let's go ahead and read now just the introduction to this subject of the tongue in James 3. Let's read verses 1 and 2. He says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, again, you'll see how this applies to everyone, especially as he continues. But teachers are those who, by their profession, they wield the tongue much more 
than others, and therefore they're prone to more danger. So teachers especially need to be careful how they use the power of speech. We all have the power, but they are using it daily, and they must be careful. And during the building of the Transcontinental Railroad in America, during that era, nitroglycerin was discovered. That's a very powerful explosive, and that it greatly accelerated blasting through mountains to make a tunnel. But it was also extremely volatile. And a sudden move could set it off and resulted in many accidental explosions and deaths. And so everyone working on the railroad, everyone was instructed, be careful how you handle a crate of nitroglycerin. And that command applied to everyone on the railroad. But you see, the guys who actually had to handle that stuff and and put it in the mountain to blow up, they had really better pay attention to that command, right? They had really better heed that warning. Be careful how you handle nitroglycerin. Because they're the ones dealing with it every day, and they're the ones whose lives are on the line. And so they better be careful. And in a similar way, like every one of us has a tongue. And the tongue is like a powder keg just waiting to go off. And when it blows, it can do a lot of damage to others. And so we all need to be careful how we handle the tongue. We'll see that. But teachers especially, they're, they're working with the tongue every day. And so they need to be really careful. For indeed, if a teacher in a position of influence blows up with the tongue, it can produce a lot of fallout. Many others can get hurt. It's a needed warning. So today we're just going to learn an introductory lesson about the power of the tongue and the responsibility we all share to handle it rightly, but especially teachers. Now, as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help it. It's just that the words, the sage wisdom of Uncle Ben from Spider-Man just came to my mind. I couldn't help it. With great power comes great responsibility. It's just a perfect line, but it, it nails James 3. I mean, that's the tongue. With great power, we've all been given the power of speech. It comes great responsibility, and uh, doubly so for teachers. That's what James 3 is about. And those who use the power of speech in a position of influence need to be doubly careful. So we're just going to explore this opening admonition, and it comes pretty straightforward as one warning and two reasons. Simple as that, one warning and two reasons. Let's just explore it. First, the warning. The warning, he says, let not many of you become teachers. It starts with this warning, let not many of you become teachers. This is an unexpected and unique warning in Scripture. We have a high view of teachers. We love teachers in our society, in the church. They have a noble task. So shouldn't we be promoting teachers? Shouldn't we be encouraging the next generation to become teachers? Especially in the church, right? The more people who are equipped to teach the Word of God, the better, right? Well, yes, of course, in a sense, but with qualification. That's the point. James is not forbidding teachers. He's not trying to dis, or discourage qualified teachers from rising up, but he's giving aspiring teachers a moment of pause to count the cost and understand the danger because there's real danger. I'll give you a bit of background here. This word for teacher was used often of the Jewish rabbi. And you know, James writes very early. 
has a Jewish Christian background. And so the, the concept of the rabbi as teacher, it's definitely in the background here. That was their MO for what a teacher looked like. But in Jewish culture of the day, the, the rabbis, they were given the utmost respect. Theirs was a position of honor and prestige. Jews even showed more favor toward their rabbi than their parents. It was said that your parents brought you into this world, but rabbis can bring you into the next. And so they were to honor their rabbi even more than their aging parents, for example. Take care of your rabbi first. So in a real way, the position of rabbi had become a position of power and influence and prestige. The rabbi was the voice of God and God's word for the people. That's a lot of power. And as you can imagine, that power of speech can be used for great good or great evil. Now, some of the early rabbis, they had good intentions, and they were really trying to shepherd the flock of God and minister the word to God's people. But as you know, by the day of Christ, the rabbi, and many of whom were scribes and Pharisees, the rabbi had been consumed by the pride of their position, and they started using the power they had, the power of speech, for selfish gain. They had become teachers who were out to feed themselves. They used the tongue to manipulate others, to serving them, to honoring them, in many ways even above God. And Jesus said this about these people in Matthew 23, 5 through 7. He said of them, they, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they brought in their phylacteries, they lengthened the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. These Jewish teachers, they were just devouring all the praise, all the attention they received. They were, you know, in a way, the celebrities of their culture. And respect was given to them. They just kind of ate it up. It went to their heads. How long do you think it's going to take someone like that in that position to, to start thinking, you know what? I think I am better than most of these people. People should show me this honor, this respect. You know, I think people should stand up when I enter the room. You know, such selfishness and self-centeredness, it's at the very heart of fallen man. And when such a person becomes a teacher unchecked, it's not going to take long for them to use the power of speech for themselves, just to serve themselves, to better themselves and not others. Now you may think, okay, well, kind of expect that problem among the Jewish rabbis. I mean, these guys were wicked and corrupt. That's why Jesus is rebuking them all the time, right? But Christian teachers in the church they're prone to the exact same thing. All the same abuses, the same selfishness. And so you fast forward to the early church after Jesus, and there were no rabbis in the church per se, but the equivalent role was that of the pastor teacher. And the word rabbi just means teacher after all. And so the, the pastor teacher became the, 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 the new central teacher of the church, went from synagogue to the church. And, you know, the New Testament comes with a high view of that role. Like we read this morning in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. 
that God gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It was God's will to give to the church pastor teachers to build up the body. And elsewhere, Paul, he ranked the gift of teaching pretty high on the list of spiritual gifts. Like 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. And we know that God used the apostles and prophets in the early church to give new revelation to the church. That's complete. We have the New Testament now. And so now it's, it's left to teachers to deliver that revelation, to exposit it, to explain it, to administer it, and apply it to the flock of God for their growth, right? So the elder pastor teacher is the primary role of spiritual leadership in the church now, and, and that's fine. That, that's by God's design. But just, just know that certain dangers, they just come with that territory, just like the rabbis, teachers in the church, by the very nature of their position, they're up there wielding the power of speech over many others. And that power can be used for great good to build up others, to encourage. Teachers in the church can do great things for the flock of God. They can lead them to green pastures and really minister to their souls with the word. But the temptation is there to use just the inherent power of speech to feed themselves, their ego, their pride, their pocket. It's possible for them to turn the power of speech into a means of selfish gain. And so what do you know? It, it wasn't long before, even in the early church, there were those who started to become teachers just to serve themselves. You may recall Philippians 1. We studied a while ago, but the Apostle Paul had been imprisoned in Rome. So in many ways, his voice, his teaching, in many ways had been silenced. But thankfully, other men found courage and they rose up to fill that gap. And they became teachers and evangelists and ministers of the gospel in Rome. That's good. But Paul identifies there were some mixed motives in that group of teachers and he says in Philippians 1, 15 through 17, of these new teachers, he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But he says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. And so, look, there, there already were people who, who found out that, hey, becoming a teacher in the church, you can get some gain there. You can maybe make some money, get some power, some influence. So there are already people rising up to become teachers, he says, out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. It didn't take long. They were just trying to build their own kingdom to the praise of their own name and their own glory. And so the warning of James here, it really stands. It stands forever. It is God's will for the church to be fed and led by teaching shepherds. He has willed that some would use the power of speech through the word to build up 
God's house. That's good. That's appropriate. But given that all teachers are still sinners, the warning stands. Any who would take on the mantle and assume such a position of influence needs to be warned. Godly biblical teachers can do so much good in the lives of the flock of God, but they can also do a lot of harm. So heed the warning. Take this role in the church seriously. Let not many of you become teachers. Some must become teachers. Some must assume this role. The church needs teachers by God's design, but only those qualified, only those called, only those gifted, and only those who are signing up, like Paul says, with pure motives. They're not there out of selfish ambition. They're not seeking to serve self. They just want to serve God and serve others. The stakes are high, which is why James next adds a pair of his own reasons for this warning. So we've seen the warning. It's, it's plain. It's clear. Now two reasons to add to it. Reason number one, teachers face a stricter judgment. Reason one, teachers face a stricter judgment. Look back at verse one of James three. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, first you see how James, he's including himself here. He says, we, we will incur a stricter judgment. Even James, he's the half brother of the Lord, but even he is not above the standard. He being a teacher of the church knows that He himself will be accountable to a stricter judgment. Now, Christians can sometimes get confused by any mention of judgment. You might think, hey, I thought we won't be judged. You know, if we're we're saved in Christ, I thought we've passed out of judgment. There's no condemnation, all that stuff. So what's this judgment here he's talking about for Christians or teachers? Well, it's true that the believer, if you're a, a true believer in Christ, you have genuine living faith, that you'll never face God's condemnation by God's grace and by virtue of Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. By faith in him, we we have passed out of death and into life. We've passed out of judgment and into forgiveness and reconciliation. That's good news. What Christ has done for us, we, we we need not fear God's wrath for those in Christ because The Savior, he's already drank the full cup of wrath on our behalf. We have passed out of judgment. But how you live still matters to the Lord, though. And there will be a level of accountability before him. This judgment is not in respect to salvation, but it is in respect to evaluation. The scripture teaches this judgment for believers rather plainly, like Romans 14 Verses 10 and 12. He says, but why do you judge your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. He's talking about believers there. Before this, this bema seat, this judgment seat of God. Likewise, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so it's very clear that even for believers, there's still a day of accounting. Again, it's not for the purpose of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's not for condemnation. It's not for salvation, but it is for evaluation and for the sake of rewards. Paul says each one will be recompensed for his deeds done in the body. It's really no different than Jesus taught in the parable of the talents. Remember that? Christ taught that parable in the context of his second coming, where he wanted his disciples to live rightly in this age in preparation for the next. And so he tells of a man who goes on a long journey. And so he leaves behind his his finances, his estate in the form of talents, that's a a currency, to his servants. And so he, he gives one guy five talents. The other guy gets two talents and the last guy gets one talent. Each one was entrusted a talent, it says, according to their ability. And so the the master goes off on his long journey. And the first two servants, they're faithful and they're wise. They're prudent. They take what's been entrusted to them. They invest it and they double it. They steward it wisely. They increase their value. But the third servant, he's wicked and lazy. He does nothing with it. And so the master returns. And as he returns, he proceeds to evaluate his servants. And the faithful servants, they're commended and rewarded. And the reward comes in greater service to the master. He says to them, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. They're blessed. They're rewarded when the master returns. But the the lazy slave, however, is rebuked and chided, and receives no reward. And this teaching applies to all believers in the church, that in the day of Christ, all will be held accountable for how they lived, and what they did with their lives, their resources, their gifts, and the abilities that God gave them. You will give an account. And did not James himself speak of this very same judgment back in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, so speak, And so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Remember all we learned about the law of Christ? We're we're held accountable to that. And so one's level of accountability before God relates to how much they were entrusted with and what they did with it. Those who were given more light. Those entrusted with more revelation. Those endowed with greater gifts. More will be expected of them. Theirs will be a stricter judgment. And so now with with that kind of in mind, it's along these lines, James says to teachers, he singles out teachers and says, you guys, we, we're going to incur a stricter judgment. You know, one would hope that teachers, given their position, would have a better handle on the Bible than most. You know, like just by God's grace, they're given a greater opportunity and and a greater gifting to know and teach the scriptures, that, that comes with their position, their gifting. Then you have those who spend like 20, 30, 40 hours a week studying the Bible, learning about God and his will. They're going to be accountable to all that knowledge, all that greater knowledge. Now, look, that can be a great blessing if you wield that knowledge rightly to lead others, to feed the flock, 
to minister the truth that others would be built up into Christ's image. Well, those teachers will experience just a great blessing and joy in their life and reward in Christ. But if you don't, if you take the power of speech that you've been given as a teacher of the word and you squander it for selfish gain, you just use it kind of manipulatively just to increase your name or your glory or your pocket or whatever, you can expect nothing but the discipline and the rebuke of the Lord. Those entrusted with a greater knowledge and ability to teach his word, they're going to be held to a stricter standard of accountability. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so again, God holds teachers and leaders in his church accountable to their greater knowledge, their greater influence, their greater stewardship over the lives of others. And again, that's a good thing. It's only appropriate that those with greater responsibility should have greater accountability. And so God, God's going to do that. Leave that to him. He will judge. He will do what is right. He will reward accordingly. But as for you, for your perspective, just beware and heed this warning. For those of you who are teachers or even aspiring teachers, why do you aim to teach the Bible and lead others? Is it for yourself to serve yourself, to fleece the flock, get rich off the flock, or to build your ego, to, to serve your name, to seek your glory? Just beware. This, this teaching is not meant to discourage teachers, just the wrong kind of teachers. You know, this is a day and age where the church needs faithful believers to rise up, learn the word, and teach the word. We want that. Those who do so for the right reasons will inherit a great blessing from the Lord. But you just have to be careful here because we're playing with fire. The ministry of the tongue is volatile. The power of speech is great. And we're dealing with explosives that can do amazing work for the kingdom. But if they blow up the wrong way, it can do a lot of harm as well. And so teachers must watch out. And this leads to the second reason that James gives this warning. One warning, two reasons. At first, teachers, they're going to find a stricter judgment. And the second reason, they, they need to beware. Teachers are more prone to stumble. Teachers are more prone to stumble. After the warning, let not many of you become teachers. He adds, verse 2. He says next, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, stumbling here literally refers to you're walking along and you strike your foot on a rock and you stumble, you, you fall down. And figuratively, of course, it refers to tripping or stumbling into sin or transgression. It's not a fatal flaw, but it, it hinders your progress. As the runner's feet get entangled and he, he trips in his race, his race isn't over, but his progress has been slowed. And sadly, such stumbling in our Christian race, it happens often. To stumble here is in the present tense, 
speaks of a recurring action. We are those who we stumble and we keep on stumbling. Even after Christ, we sin and we just, we kind of keep on sinning. We still do it. And in many ways, he says, we, we all stumble in many ways and refers to a variety of sins, not just with the tongue, but in many other ways we, we fall short. Now, that being said, our stumbling most definitely includes the tongue, right? Because who here is without sin in speech? I'm going I'm to take that as a no one. You know, who here has mastered the tongue? No one. In fact, James says, if, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, you're just a perfect person. You're perfect. You're able to bridle the whole body as well. And sins of speech, they're just the easiest sins to commit. The tongue is slippery after all, and it's just the wrong thing said can come out without even thinking. Even at times without truly intending it, just it can come out. Hurtful, sinful words. And accordingly, the tongue is the hardest member of our bodies to control. And that's the point James will make later in the chapter. Since the tongue is so slippery, it's the hardest area to master and overcome. It's, it's just hard not to stumble in speech. And that being the case, he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. Since the tongue is so difficult to control, if someone had truly gained mastery over the tongue, well, then, you know, mastering the other sins of the body, there'd be no problem. Right? If a person had that much self-control where they could no longer sin in speech, well, then it's going to be no problem for them to, to overcome other areas of sin. It's like saying, if you can perfectly drive a Formula One race car through a course at 200 miles an hour, perfectly, well, then you're driving a golf cart in a parking lot. It's not going to be trouble for you. That's what he's saying. And if someone had really mastered the tongue like this, he would be a perfect man, which he just means really that the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. Mastering the tongue, it's the summit of Mount Everest when it comes to spiritual maturity. And so look, part of James's point is that sins of speech, they're going to happen. They're going to happen often. He's dealing realistically with sinners in a fallen world. Shouldn't be that way, but, but it will. Even after salvation, we all stumble in many ways. And speech is just one of those ways. I think we'd agree speech is, is the biggest one of those ways because it's just so easy to sin with the tongue. And it's just so hard to control the tongue. We certainly should aspire toward maturity in our speech. And that, that is a sure mark of spiritual maturity. And the more we control our tongue in response to life's trials, and the more we resemble the image of Christ, who was perfect in speech. With all that being said, the real point, though, behind verse 2 still goes back to teachers. Because teachers, they're no exception to verse 2. Meaning, he says, we all stumble in many ways. That includes teachers. Teachers... Likewise, stumble in many ways. Teachers, likewise, they're going to stumble in speech. James again includes himself saying, we all stumble in many ways. Even James himself, again, the pillar of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of the Lord, even he stumbled in speech. So did Paul, so did Peter, 
That's how hard the tongue is to control. And so, look, teachers are going to stumble. And sometimes they're going to stumble in their speech and what they say. But the difference, though, is that for teachers, the stakes are higher. When a teacher, leader, or pastor sins in speech, it can really hurt, damage, and discourage the flock. There can be real fallout. It may even wound the faith of others. The words of a teacher in a position of influence carry greater weight. And so if you have a teacher who's stumbling in speech frequently and severely, it's going to lead to a lot of trouble. It's going to be a lot of damage done. When you slip up in speech by yourself, no one's around. Well, no one is affected. It's still wrong, but there's less fallout. But when teachers stumble in speech, it's just going to affect the whole body. And so it goes back to that warning. Teachers, beware the power of speech. Can you just imagine the damage done to like a little local church? If the pastor got up there and he starts to preach, but he includes some gossip about people in the church in his message. He's airing people's dirty laundry. He's naming names. Or what if he started harshly slandering and criticizing others by name out of maybe anger or frustration? I mean, just think about the hurt that would cause, the shame, the conflict, the division. You blow a church up just by a few words. And things are even worse when a teacher stumbles into falsehood when his words are not informed and he ministers the word of God wrongly. The power of speech through the gift of teaching. It's so important in scripture that there are frequent reminders of how deadly serious this work is. Like 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The workman or the teacher is going to be evaluated for how he handled the word of truth. God cares. Every word matters. Words matter to God. You have to get it right. Also, you have 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, where Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside toward myth. Did you catch how serious of a charge that was? Paul talking to Timothy, he's like the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he reminds Timothy that, hey, you're the teacher there, right? Your commission to preach the word, it's before God and Christ Jesus, who, by the way, is to judge the living and the dead. Sounds like it's kind of a big deal to God. That sounds pretty serious, this commission to preach the word. And the teacher is given, and God's design, a measure of power over others. The power of speech. The power of speech that taps into the authority of God's scripture. Because this is where the real authority is. No human, just the word. 
but the one wielding the word is going to have a, a derived authority. And so that person had better use that power for God's will, not his own. But there's going to be no shortage of churches and teachers who minister the word for themselves. They accumulate ear-tickling teachers in accordance to their own desires. Just tell me what I want to hear. Or the teacher will, will tell them what they want to hear for his own gain. It's been done before and it, it still goes on. But the, the true teacher must have no horse in the race. Apart from just God, his glory, his will. You know, we're going to learn more in James. The tongue, it's a dangerous weapon for all of us. Even if you're not a formal teacher in the church, you still have great potential to bless others with your speech, build them up, or to tear them down, to wound them and dishonor Christ. So we're going to learn a lot more about the power of the tongue. And no one's off the hook here. But just let this warning stand, though, for teachers and aspiring teachers teachers. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. You know, the very profession of teachers involves the use of the tongue, but the tongue, again, it's the hardest member to control. So it's like for teachers, they're running their Christian race through an obstacle course. There's stumbling blocks all over the place. There's many opportunities for them to stumble. If they do the consequences are great. The stakes are high. So just be warned. Take the role seriously. Again, this is not to discourage teachers, just self-willed, immature teachers. But the church needs God-willed, mature teachers. We're not talking perfection for, hey, we all stumble, but we need those who display a measure of maturity in speech. The church needs those who are going to use the power of the tongue like God to build up, to encourage, to edify, to minister. We don't need those who are going to use the tongue like Satan to bring death, to tear down, to serve self. So evaluate how you use the power of speech, especially if you're in a position of influence. So by the way, that counts for all husbands and fathers. Because by your very role, you're teachers in a sense, right? So don't think you're off the hook. Words matter to God. They contain the power to change people, to change the world. We all will come to evaluate our speech in James, but just teachers, listen up. Use what we've learned to evaluate your teachers. Knowing that it's God's design for teachers to lead the church just put yourself under those who display maturity in speech, self-control, restraint, wisdom, grace. Look for those who build up and encourage with speech and not tear down, hurt, and mislead with sinful or erroneous speech. At the same time, though, make sure you still have a measure of grace toward your teachers because uh, I like that verse that we all stumble in many ways. That's in a way encouraging, right? Like, it's not just me, it's you guys too. That we all stumble in many ways. And there's going to be a time when you know, leaders and teachers in the church, they might say the wrong thing, the wrong place, the wrong time, even if they're well-meaning. 
And we're thankful for God's grace in our own lives in overcoming our sin. And we're called to have the same spirit of graciousness toward others with offenses. And so your teachers will need that at time. Show grace. If anything here, learn to pray for your teachers. Pray that God would give them the right words to speak, that no false or sinful word would proceed from their mouth, but that God would help them navigate the minefield of their profession. You know, so much spiritual good can result from the power of speech through the ministry of the word. It's amazing how, how, how blessed the church can be through the preaching, the teaching of the word. God designs to use teachers in a, in a mighty way. But there's a big target on the back of your teachers and their path is filled with stumbling blocks. So remember to, to pray for them. Pray for them like Ephesians 4.15 says, that as they speak the truth in love, that we all might grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's the goal here. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this gift of speech. It's something we don't think about often, but what a wonder that separates us from creation, from the animals. Part of being made in your image, we can talk, we can reason, communicate, and use the gift of language. It can be used for great good and and beauty and, and edification, but also great harm as well. And I trust we all know that. I'm sure all of us here have hurt others with our speech and been hurt by others with our speech. And as James says, it it ought not be this way. We praise you for Christ who came without any sin in speech to redeem us, to save us, to, to free us from that judgment for just by our speech alone, we are worthy of condemnation. And we're grateful for new life in him and new tongues as well, that though we still stumble, we now can use our tongues to praise you, to pray, to worship, and to speak into the lives of others to build them up. This is all so doubly true for teachers. So I I pray for myself, the elders at this church, Pastor Oliver and and, and others who who teach, you would guard us, guard them, keep us free from sin of speech. and, And may we always keep in mind that the seriousness of the position, the power entrusted to us just by the territory, by the ministry of the word, keep us above reproach. We need your grace and and mercy and protection there. And so guard this church from uh, sinful speech. May this be a place where the word is preached and used by all and to build up. That's our our aim, Lord. You've you've given the church teachers for the building up of the body in love. And so may that characterize us now and, and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.